Welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast. Good Reading is a monthly magazine dedicated to books and reading and aims to help readers discover their next favourite book. You can find out more about the books discussed on today's podcast at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. Hello and welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Isabel Vincent is an investigative journalist for the New York Post. She's the author of five books, including Bodies and Souls, Gilded Lily, and Dinner with Edward. Today, I'm talking with Isabel Vincent about her new book, Overture of Hope, Two Sisters' Daring Plan That Saved Opera's Jewish Stars from the Third Reich. Isabel, welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Thanks so much for having me. This book is about two quite remarkable sisters, Ida and Louise Cook. You describe them as plain and anonymous civil servant typists who live quietly with their parents in South London, unthreatening and forgettable. But that plain facade has obscured an inner life driven by a passion for opera. How did this passion for opera begin with the Cook sisters? So it began um, with Louise Cook, the older sister, stumbling upon a lecture. She was a typist in the law courts in London, and she went to a lecture on music. The lecturer played a piece from Madame Butterfly, and she was just transfixed, so much so that she came home. And I should add that they always lived with their parents, even as they rented a smaller apartment in Pimlico to host their opera soirees and then their refugees. So Louise comes home and says, I need to buy a gramophone and and we need to get records. So they would play the records at home and they often invited a lot of their fellow cures, the people who were who were in line with with them to their home to listen to opera records. They even grew so bold as to invite Ezio Pinza, one of the great opera singers of the day, as well as um, Elizabeth Rethberg. It became a sort of social event for them. And when the opera wasn't on at uh, the Royal Opera House, they would invite people to their parents' home and then later to their little apartment to listen to opera. Um, So it became this passion for the sisters. I mean, they didn't have a lot of money. So they would sit outside uh, Covent Garden, the Royal Opera House, um, and they would stand in line for hours. But they also got to see everybody who is coming, all of the stars who are coming in and out of the, of the stage entrance. So that's how the opera passion started. And it continued with Ida boldly going up to these divas and conductors and asking if she could take their photograph for her little collection. And that's how she met a lot of the most famous opera singers and conductors of the day. One of the earliest singers they met was uh, Amalita Gallicucci, who invited the sisters to one of her performances uh, in New York at the Met. In those days, uh, crossing the Atlantic was a formidable undertaking and expensive too. How did they even fund that trip? When they started to get into opera, Amalita Gallicucci was their favourite singer. Um, And they went to her shows at the Royal Albert Hall. And these were just song cycles it wasn't she wasn't in any operas and she they they got up the courage to go backstage and talk to her and ask her where she would be doing opera and she says well i only do opera in new york at the metropolitan um so ida boldly says well then that's where we'll go and it took them two years to save the money um walking to work going without lunch um 
in order to make the trip to New York to save 100 pounds each. Now we're talking 1927. So this is before Ida becomes a romance novelist. It's, they're still working their dreary jobs in the, in the law courts. And they actually go to New York in January, 1927. Because the trip is so crazy, these two young women, um, uh, saving for two years to go to New York to hear opera. They start talking to people on the boat on the way to New York. When they get to New York, they're met by a New York Times journalist who does a whole piece about them and then follows them on their trip. Um, so it was quite something at the time. Your book tells the story of them becoming a formidable team, but let's talk about them as individuals. Ida actually had a very successful career as a writer of romance fiction under the name of Mary Birchall. Tell me a little bit more about Ida and her career as a romance novelist. This was all to fuel their passion for opera in order to make money to go to the United States um, to, to hear their favourite opera singers at the Metropolitan Opera. Uh, Ida decided she was going to write first articles for various papers, the Daily Mail, some of the women's magazines. Uh, and she was dabbling in this while she was still working as a clerk. And one of the editors said, well, why don't you try your hand in fiction? And so she wrote this little romance that went over several editions of, of the magazine that she was working for, Mab's Fashions. It was seen by a publisher who specialized in, in romance novels, and he called her in and asked her if she wanted to try her hand at a book. So she did. Her first book was Wife to Christopher. Um, I read it, actually. It's quite good, I mean, for, for what it is. I mean, it's very well written. Um, the plot is, is riveting. I really, I, I actually read several of Ida's books. Anyway, she starts to make money from this, and she realizes you know, both the sisters um, never had a great deal of money. So they, they suddenly have all this money and they're thinking, well, what should we do with it? And of course, the publisher who engaged her as a writer was Mills and Boone. The editors at Mills and Boone offered her a three book deal. She wanted to sign up right away. Um, and the editor said, no, 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 no. Take this home to your father, have him read it. And then, you know, if everything's OK, then you can sign it. So it was a very paternalistic kind of relationship. But actually, she stayed with them for a very long time. Um, and they had this very interesting view about romance writers and the new audience that they were trying to reach. And that was women. I remember a very good quote from one of them. He said, we, we never looked down on what we were doing. We always said the, that we're doing romance, but it's going to be the best of, of what we can produce. And I think they did. I mean, with Ida anyway, they did produce some very good books. And this was the age when big names like Barbara Cartland were, were coming into their own. So Ida Cook actually was very successful as Mary Birchall. She ended up writing something like 167 books in her lifetime. And she used that to finance their, you know, later in life, their opera trips. Um, they gave out scholarships to opera singers, stuff like that. But, but during the war, that money, or, or just before the war, that money was used to help their refugees. Let's talk about Louise Cook, the bureaucrat of the team. Is it the bureaucratic role that she plays or is there more to Louise's story? Well, Louise is shy and retiring. And when I spoke to a lot of people who knew them, um, they said a lot of people tended not to pay too much attention to, to Louise. But when she actually did speak, 
the depth of what she was saying was quite amazing, but she did teach herself German. She was the sort of eternal bureaucrat. And at one point she burned all of the information about the refugees that they saved. And when I read that, I thought, oh, they're trying to protect somebody or they're trying to protect people's privacy. Maybe they were spies. The speed with which Louise learns German is, is quite something. I mean, it was like a matter of a few months. She was the more, I think, focused of the pair. As Ida and Louise became more and more involved in the world of opera, they became part of a, an inner circle where they encountered the Romanian soprano Fiorica Usuliak. Now, this is an important meeting in view of what was about to unfold, wasn't it? They became very good friends with Viorica, and she introduced them to their first would-be refugee. And it was a woman named Mitya Meyer-Liesman, who was an opera scholar and who used to give lectures about opera at Salzburg and other places. She was also a very accomplished pianist and um, used to teach at the conservatory in Frankfurt. Um, and she was Jewish and went to London for a series of lectures and Viorica asked Ida and Louise to please look after her. Now, they didn't quite understand what that meant, but they took her on this little tour of London and they went to all of the big cathedrals. And at one point, Ida asks Micha, are you Protestant or Catholic? And she said, oh, I thought you knew I'm a Jew or I'm a Jewess is how she put it. They hadn't met a Jew before. And because they had no idea what what she was going through in Frankfurt. She tells them the story about the introduction of the Nuremberg laws and how she lost her job at the conservatory, how it was her husband couldn't have his business anymore. So the, to answer your question, I mean, Viorica was very important to them because she put them on the path to saving all of the people that they saved. The Cook sisters find themselves in a unique position, posing as two English blondes, as they describe themselves, they hatch a plan to help more Jewish musicians through an elaborate ruse they concoct with the help of Viorica Usuliak and her husband, Clemens Krauss. How did that ruse work? Viorica and her husband, um, Clemens Krauss, would talk to the Cook sisters in advance and they would ask them what operas they wanted them to put on. So at this time, uh, Clemens Krauss is in a position of great power. He is the conductor at the Munich Opera, and Munich is the most important opera house in Nazi Germany, and Clemens Krauss is the favorite of Adolf Hitler. So he can do pretty much what he wants. Um, so they come in on the weekends for, for, the, uh, for opera, uh, and they come in sort of with very little clothes and a small suitcase, because they, uh, during the time that they're, they're in Munich or they're in Vienna or they're in Frankfurt, and this is before the war, these are the years before the war, when Jews are still allowed to leave, but they have to leave all of their assets behind. So this includes jewelry, furs. So what happens is the sisters agree to smuggle a lot of the jewelry and the fur coats. And they do so by, well, some of it's taking it in their suitcases, but also by wearing it. And they figure that if they could, you know, they plaster all these like great diamond brooches on their Marks and Spencer's dresses. And they figure that they can just walk through immigration back to, and customs back to the UK without anybody really noticing because all of that finery on cheap clothes will just look cheap, right? and it does work again and again. They actually go through the trouble of ripping off the labels 
of the German and Austrian fur coats and sewing in British labels to the coats that they get in the UK before they come. One other thing that I found very interesting in the archives in Austria is that they they would send a letter to Clemens Krauss's secretary and they would ask him to reserve them something like 80 opera tickets for each performance. And I thought, what are they doing, 80 opera tickets? So what they would do is they would bring a group of people into the Third Reich from the UK, and they would they would have their would-be refugees pay for all of their expenses. So they would pay for the 80 opera tickets, and they would pay for their hotel and their meals. And they would only get their money back once they crossed the border into the UK. This was kind of a money laundering operation through opera tickets that allowed the refugees to be paid once they were safely in England. And I just thought that was genius. Let's turn back to Clemens Krauss, a very ambitious individual, but also involved in this ruse to move Jewish artists and their possessions out of Nazi Germany. But at the same time, he's one of Hitler's favourites, which also makes him quite a powerful individual. Now, does that make him a hero or a villain? Well, after the war, he went through a denazification trial. You know, he's a very interesting character for me, a very complex character. Yes, he used the fact that during the Nazi regime, he used the fact that a lot of other conductors were leaving, and he used that to jockey for position. He never joined the Nazi party, but he took advantage of the sort of mess that the opera world was in when Hitler came to power. I mean, there was a lot of intrigue in, in the classical music world, and he just took advantage of it. And, you know, before you knew it, he was in charge of Munich. He was in charge of Berlin, much to the annoyance of a lot of his colleagues. He's not a completely good guy because he did take over the apartments that were Aryanized in Munich um, for his musicians and for his opera singers to use. We found all of that in the archives. I mean, that's really taking advantage of the situation. But he also asked Ida and Louise through his wife to save all of these people. So you've got a very complex kind of Oscar Schindler character, you know, who uses these Jews in his factory as slave labor, but he helps them. So, I mean, Clemens Krauss falls into the same categories. And after the war, he goes through this trial and his old colleagues in Austria who are conducting the trial They slam him and they say, you know what? You can't be in a position of leadership anymore. And he was one of the greatest conductors of Austria. I mean, people loved him. Um, So he's not able to conduct. He's not able to lead an orchestra, but he does manage to do so after a period of three years. But the whole situation of how he's treated after the war really breaks his spirit. Um, and which I don't want to give too much away, but it, it really leads to his demise. And I actually, one of the things I want to do with the book is to make people aware that Clemens Krauss in his way was also a hero. Because of him, 29 families were saved. And when Ida and Louise were honored by Yad Vashem, in the letters to um, the Yad Vashem people, like before they were honored, Ida writes, you know, we're, we're thrilled that you're honoring us, but we would really like you to honor Clemens Krauss as well, because without him, this never would have happened. Um, and so in that sense, he's a very interesting, complex character, not an easy hero, but, but yes, a hero. 
I'm interested to know what part the British government played, or conversely, what they what part they didn't play. What kind of support did they receive through official channels? Not much is the answer. With one of their refugees, Georg Maliniak, who is a Polish-Austrian Jew who was trying to leave Vienna, he was the deputy conductor to Clemens Krauss. Ida was at her wit's end. And so she called one of her old friends who worked at Downing Street, at 10 Downing Street. And he was able to put her in touch with somebody else who could help speed the visa that Maliniak needed. This was like in 1939, just before the war started. So other than Ida's like the husband of Ida's childhood friend helping them. They didn't receive much in the way of support. They uh, also prevailed upon the consul in Frankfurt, Ambassador Smallbones, to help them. And he did what he could, but in some circumstances, he, he couldn't help. People's hands were tied. My final question to you is something quite different. These are two very passionate but practical women. But for all their practical thinking and the bravery with which they undertook their missions, they still harbour this lifelong fascination with ghosts alongside this fearlessness and absolute independence. How does that feed into the, the totality of their lives? It's a whole element of fantasy. They live through their fantasies, both Ida and Louise. Actually, Louise helped Ida with a lot of her plots in the romance novels. They live through the melodrama of opera, but their lives are pretty dull, if you will. When people started to die in their lives, um, they, had a, they had a niece who died of leukemia, when Krauss died, when um, Poncel, Rosa Poncel dies, when Amelita Gallicucci dies, they want to be able to, to still have a relationship with them. So they go and seek out a median. You know, I like to say that this was not unusual in like the 40s and the 50s. I mean, there's a lot of literature about people going and having seances and, you know, hearing from the other world. And, and both Ida and Louise believed in it so much. I mean, they wrote about it. They invited their friends to come to the seances. Uh, one woman who was um, a young opera singer had lost her brother in Los Angeles in the 1970s. And Ida and Louise extended this invitation for them to come to one of their seances in London. And apparently, according to the, according to the woman, I did an interview with her, her brother came through um, in sort of real voice. Um, so I mean, it's sort of fascinating in a way. You can go on the internet now and and download some of the discussions that Ida and Louise had with Leslie Flint, who's a very famous median. And they were talking to like Enrico Caruso and they're talking to Richard Strauss and Clemence Krauss. It's really fascinating. So to answer your question, they, on, you know, on the outside, they seemed very sort of boring, but they had these fantastic inner lives. And as you said, I mean, they weren't afraid of anything in the end. I mean, I think they were afraid, but they just get on with it. Um, you know, there's a funny scene of them going to Salzburg um, after the assassination of, of the chancellor in the mid-1930s. And, you know, they're, they're wondering if they should go. 
uh, and they ask the Cook's travel agent that put the trip together, um, you know, should we go? And and the quote, the, the greatest quote was, well, the man from Cook's said we would be able to go and we're going, you know, no matter that the borders were closed and there was all, you know, Nazis at the border, this 1934, they went to the Salzburg Festival. Nothing was going to stop them from enjoying what they loved, which was opera. Well, it's a fascinating book and so much to discover, not just about Ada and Louise, but the world of opera in general at that period. So thank you for joining me on the Good Reading Podcast. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. I've been talking to Isabel Vincent about her latest book, Overture of Hope, Two Sisters' Daring Plan that Saved Opera's Jewish Stars from the Third Reich. It's published by Wilkinson, and you can find it at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. My name's Greg Dobbs, and thanks for listening. Subscribe to Good Reading Print and Online Magazine at goodreadingmagazine.com.au.